Hey, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Philemon this morning. Uh, we have, this is our fourth Sunday in Philemon, I think. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and kind of the common thread that has tied all of our studies through Philemon together has been this idea, which I've expressed on previous Sundays, that what Philemon does is give us sort of a master class on how the gospel should be lived out. Uh, it's just a truth that what we worship, we become. What we revere, we will in the end resemble. And so for a people who have really embraced the truth of the gospel, um, not just intellectually, but on a heart level, they believe and are guided by the Holy Spirit into a full embrace of the fact that they have been saved by what Jesus did for them and not by anything that they have done. Uh, this is a, if you do like a man-on-the-street interview and you ask them, what, what do Christ, why, how do Christians get to heaven? I, most of the time, people in our culture, they're, they're just not aware of the fact of what the basis of our hope is as Christians. They'll very often say that Christians believe they go to heaven because they're good. And certainly our goal is to become more and more like the God who saved us. I think one of the proofs and products of a person coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus is that they uh, will try to put off the old man. That's the biblical language. They will try to become more and more like Jesus. And that will become better in how they live and think and relate to others. But that's not the basis of our hope <laughs> at all. Uh, the first thing we know about a Christian, or as a Christian, is that we are sinners. And so when we, and this is very important when we're coming to this current conversation. Uh, this morning, so, so far in our study through Philemon, we've talked about how love is the governing ethic for a Christian, and the way we live, the way we relate to others, the way that we enter into worship. Love is right at the center of what it is to be a Christian, because that's at the center of the gospel. And then Pastor Andrew helped us on our second week in Philemon. He'd, we were talking about a gospel-shaped way of praying for uh, other believers within the church. And last week, we took up kind of a thorny issue. What do we do with slavery? And what is the primary purpose of the gospel in this fallen world? How do we think through things like that in our own society? And that was an interesting Sunday morning, to be sure. And now this morning, we want to come to another study in this master class on how to live out the gospel and that's on reconciliation, forgiveness, second chances. That's what we want to talk about this morning. And I just find that so much in the world just sort of wilts and dies in the presence of the gospel. Uh, for example, last week we were talking about slavery as it was practiced in the Roman world. And of course, we can't talk about that without talking about the history of our own nation and slavery which was, in a way that was different than the Roman world was based on race, racial lines. But racism just sort of wilts and dies in the presence of the gospel. Racism at its core is about a person's belief that they can boast in their own blood. It's my blood that sets me apart from another version of humanity. But the gospel trains us to boast only in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we have no merit in and of ourselves. And so we see time and time again that our human boasting, our arrogance, our efforts to inflate ourselves and puff ourselves up and make ourselves something more than what we are, wilts and dies 
in the presence of the gospel. As we look upon our own neediness before God, our own guilt before God, our own unworthiness, that really changes radically how we look on others in our lives. And it changes the way that we look at the fact that we've become estranged from others. We're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, One of the things that's frustrating about Philemon is this. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know, but not everything that we would like to know. And it's designed, I think, the Bible is designed to satisfy our souls to the uttermost, but not our curiosity. And in some ways, Paul's letter to Philemon is really emblematic of this truth. There is so much that we do not know about the conflict between Philemon and Onesimus. And I think it's natural to come away from reading this short letter feeling like you need more information. For example, we know next to nothing about the history of what came before between these two guys. How long had they known each other? We don't know any of that. We don't get any insights into their personalities or just almost anything. Was there one big event that caused them to have a falling out? Or was it a lot of little things? How long has Onesimus been gone when this letter was written? We know very, very little, maybe even nothing at all, about what specific issues or issue have caused the rift between Philemon and Onesimus. We don't know to what degree Philemon is wrong or right in this whole affair, or Onesimus for that matter. One of them might be on the side of the angels, and one of them might be pure villain. Who knows? We just don't have that enough information to render those kinds of judgments. And I, I suspect that most likely if we knew all the facts, neither of them would come out smelling like roses. And we just know that because a lot of us are married. The truth is, we just don't know. We don't know if Philemon's a good guy or a bad guy, what percentage of which. We don't know that about Onesimus. Paul seems confident of how Philemon will respond, but ultimately, we don't even know how it all worked out. We don't know how things went when they were eventually reunited. God, in His wisdom, gave us the letter to Philemon with this extraordinary lack of detail. (laughs) Why? (laughs) I can't know for sure. I can't speak for God. But here's one possibility. Maybe God didn't want us to know all the details because then we would too easily cast aside what is at the center of this letter to pursue to live the gospel by pursuing reconciliation with others. None of us in this room can walk away from Philemon saying that book is about a different kind of conflict, estrangement, a different kind of brokenness than the one I'm experiencing in my own life. I think if, if I'm somebody here this morning, if you're in this room today and you are estranged from somebody and you've been feeling the prompting from the Holy Spirit to go to them and be reconciled, but you've been resisting that, you're entering into this study looking for ways, I'm willing to bet, that what he's talking about in Philemon doesn't match up with me. And and God takes away a lot of that. He removes a lot of contextual detail, maybe, possibly, because he knows that's what human beings do. If this is just about workplace issues... 
then my estrangement from a family member need not apply. If this is about something somebody did to me, or is it about something I did to somebody else, who has the obligation to go to the other party? We don't know that from this letter. We don't know if Onesimus is the wronged person or the uh, is he the plaintiff or the defendant? We don't know. We don't really know any of that. So nobody can say, for example, well, the reason why I'm estranged from so-and-so is really different from what's going on with Philemon and Onesimus, so this book doesn't really apply to my situation. And we can't say that because we don't know what the situation is. We're left with a general appeal to God's people to be serious about pursuing reconciliation with people from whom they've become estranged. And one of the reasons why this is here is if you want proof that reconciliation is important to our God, we need look no further than the cross. The cross is graphic proof about just how important and close to our God's heart is reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, we read this, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Again, we might try to let ourselves off the hook here, saying, well, what he's talking about there is taking the good news of the gospel to lost sinners. That's, that's the ministry of reconciliation, is reconciling lost sinners to a righteous God. Um, and that is certainly true. That is the first and most important meaning of what he is describing here in the ministry of reconciliation. We spread the gospel. We spread the good news that people can go home to the Father. But we share in his nature by pursuing reconciliation with others with whom we've become estranged through conflict. This is really an important apologetic for our faith. We cannot credibly proclaim the necessity of being reconciled to the Father while not pursuing reconciliation with people that we are estranged from. And so what I want us to see here is, again, we're talking about living the gospel. We're living in the midst of this amazing story where God the Father has reconciled us to himself through what Jesus did on the cross, and that that finds expression in the way we live. Living the gospel. And Philemon demonstrates that pursuing reconciliation is an important part of what it means to live out the gospel. Here are some ways, I want to spend our time this morning talking about some ways that reconciliation and the gospel are reflected in Paul's appeal to Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus. And the first thing we have to see here is this, there's an emphasis on going to the person. Verse 12, Paul says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. In verse 17, uh, he's speaking about Onesimus in verse 12, in verse 17, he says to Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. There's an emphasis here in Philemon on Onesimus and Philemon, Onesimus going to Philemon, Philemon receiving Onesimus. It is an in-person meeting. 
In Luke 19.10, and this is a reflection of the gospel. In Luke 19.10, Jesus is quoted as saying, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came. He came. We shouldn't let this very simple, basic truth uh, go in one year and out the other. It's very significant that Jesus came to us. He, in the great story of the gospel in which we're living, who is the offended party? Unlike in this conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, which is muddy and difficult to parse out, I'm sure there were no doubt grievances on both sides. In the dynamic between man and God, God is pure, 100% the offended party. And we are the offenders. We're the ones who transgressed, broke the law. We broke faith and contract with God. And it's amazing that the gospel story is not about man coming to his senses and saying, God, we need you. (laughs) It's about man being so lost, so lost in his condition that he doesn't even see his need for God, but God coming to us. The gospel is about God's pursuit of fallen man. And why did he come? Well, Jesus says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Our God is one who sought us, pursued us, saved us. And why did we need to be sought? Because we could not or would not come to him. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We were far away. We were hopelessly lost and estranged from God the Father, and so, although Jesus was the offended party and we were the offenders, he came to us. More than that even, though, guys, he became one of us. He took our place on the cross and in the grave. He became a son of man so that we might become children of God. He became a servant that we might become free. The Bible also informs us that we were not far away because we were innocent but absent-minded wanderers like bubbles on the wind that just drifted off (laughs) innocently. No, we were far away because we were wicked and God was righteous. We were far away in the same way that a cockroach scurries away from the light, couldn't stand to be present in that light. The things we loved, God hated. The things we hated, God loved. We were enemies. Colossians 1 puts it that way, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, be, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so what, again, what does it mean to be a Christian except to follow Jesus' example in everything? So because Jesus came to do a work of reconciliation, we likewise, in becoming like him, pursue reconciliation with others. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. But here's a very important point, I think, and we do see this in Philemon in the rather ambiguous, uncertain ending of the letter. Um, We don't know ultimately how all this ended. I think that reconciliation is the sort of thing that tests our sincerity as Christians. Brokenness within the body that heals misshapenly always leads to this sort of loss of function and power. And whenever there's like a break with another human being, uh, especially within the church, 
uh, there is a tendency to let that just heal misshapenly, just get comfortable again. I, am, I always uh, point this out about myself. I don't mean to always be down on myself, but it's true that I'm what I like to describe as a muddler. I just muddle through life. I tend to, and this came out, we were out in California staying at Sarah's family's house, and there was a table there that was broken. It was kind of slanted on one end. And I kind of just adjust my life to the broken table. <laughs> I'll sit somewhere else or, you know, something like that. Uh, her uncle came and said, oh, that table's broken. And about 10 minutes later, he had the whole thing fixed and set to right. I probably would have gone 100 years adjusting my life to the broken table. That's just how I am. It's not the right way to be. I don't like it about myself. I'm trying not to be that way, but it's kind of true. I'm a muddler. Something breaks, I just kind of muddle along. I don't fix it. I think we do this a lot in the church. There's a, there's a break. Uh, there's a broken relationship. There's a falling out. Something went sideways. And rather than doing the difficult work of trying to set that to rights, um, healing it along lines that are gospel true, we just kind of try and get comfortable in the midst of that brokenness. We muddle. We muddle along. And I, I want us to see here something very important about defeating the spirit, what, what makes us muddle in the church, if that's a word. Don't look it up. It probably doesn't exist. Some reconciliation needs to happen that's years old. And if you've ever had dinner and decided, I'm going to do these dishes in the morning, you know it is much harder to scrape food off a plate the next morning. <laughs> that, that those hours that went by from when you ate to when you start to scrub, somehow it becomes like cement on there. It's, I don't know what happened. If you'd gotten to it right away, it would have been easier. But now, for all that time, has hardened. Reconciliation can be like that. Uh, time goes by, and it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. But some bones need to be rebroken. Some things need to be opened back up again so that they can be splinted along, again, the lines of God's Word. They can heal in ways that are straight and gospel true. That's a risky operation, and please hear me on this, there is no guarantee that it will go well. No guarantee at all that it will go well. <laughs> it may not. It may not. And I think this is partly, again, maybe why Philemon does not end with a happy story of two men living happily ever after. We don't know how it went a year after this letter was received. We don't know, and that's not the point. Because there's absolutely no guarantee that a person's efforts at reconciliation will be received well or that they will ultimately result in reconciliation, we have to look at something else as the basis of whether we are successful, faithful, right on in these things. So one of the first things we have to see in Philemon is this. More than wanting his children to be reconciled, God wants you, his children, to desire and pursue reconciliation. When the gospel is rightly understood, we see that God does not draw us into relationship with Him through threats of force or coercion. He leads us by our desires. And you cannot control the desires of other people. 
And Paul doesn't here either. He says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And then verse 14, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul here is saying, I could compel you through some sort of force. I could invoke my apostolic authority. I could make you do what's needed, but that would not accomplish what's needed at all. I think very often as parents, we kind of see how this is a trap. Like with my own children, I can compel the forms of worship, but can I compel the attitude of worship? I can't. I can say, you're going to this thing, (laughs) or I'm going to punish you, I'm going to force you, I'm going to drag you there, but I can't make them worship when they arrive. And ultimately, far more than wanting my kids to come to church with me, I want them to want to come to church. I want them to come to church if I can't on some Sunday because they just want to show up. And so Paul knows I can make Philemon do the right thing, but I would not have created anything that's God-honoring. He would not have been led by his desires, but by fear of punishment into what's needed. Although some kind of reconciliation could have been achieved... By Paul, pulling the pulling rank, as it were, he instead preferred to appeal, appeal to Philemon on the basis of shared values. He wants desire and agreement more than mere compliance from his friend. And by doing this, he ultimately left the outcome uncertain. The book of Philemon leaves us with an appeal to be reconciled and not really properly a story of reconciliation. Who knows what Philemon did with this letter? Paul felt confident that he would do even more than what he asked, but the Bible is silent on what happened next, or more importantly, what happened a year later, five years later. We just don't know. So what the book of Philemon does is show how to go about reconciliation but it does not describe or guarantee results. And that's true for you too. It's so easy to say, let sleeping dogs lie, or it won't change anything anyway. But we should reject that kind of reasoning because success in this endeavor will not be determined by the result, but by the sincerity of our effort by our desire for it, our pursuit of it, is itself what God is looking for. It is our desire for reconciliation and our obedient pursuit of it that God wants even more than reconciliation itself because this is, a, um, this is what worship is. This is saying back to God through the way we're living, we love who you are. What is worship? Worship is the outward expression of an inner treasuring. Do you love that God reconciled you to himself? Do you love that about him? 
If we love that that's who God is, then the worshipful response is to be like Him. That inner treasuring of a God who reconciled to Himself to us in our unworthiness, in our estrangement, in our status as an enemy who wanted nothing to do with Him, in that state He came to us loving us not when we were worthy. That inner treasuring of who God is should find outward worshipful expression and a similar posture towards those who are that to us. Philemon, be like the God who saved you. And it's so so important, I think, to our witness because an unholy church has nothing to say to an unholy society. Paul was right to say what he did, whether or not Philemon agreed with him, or responded well, or responded in a sustained way for the rest of his life. Our example in the book of Philemon, if there is an example for us, is actually Onesimus. Although Philemon's response to the letter is unknown, we do know for certain that Onesimus showed up. He returned to Philemon. He darkened the door of Philemon's house again after an absence of who knows how long, even though his reception was no doubt uncomfortable and uncertain. We know this from Colossians 4.9, where we're told that Onesimus has been returned to the Colossian church. God loves a cheerful giver, not a dutiful or generous or strategic one. And Paul wanted Philemon to cheerfully give himself to Onesimus. Biblical reconciliation requires us to give ourselves to others with vulnerable, open-handed, risky abandon. And in this, Paul models for Philemon and us the superiority of appeals over commands. This in relationships that are governed by love. And the reason why I think this is so important for us to see is because unlike forgiveness or repentance, which can be accomplished unilaterally, you can repent all on your own. You can forgive somebody all on your own without the goodwill and cooperation of the other party. Reconciliation can only be achieved bilaterally. It really does take two to tango, as they say, And this means that there will be times when reconciliation is not possible because it takes willingness from both parties to achieve it. But what Philemon shows us is that a one-sided desire to reconcile is not, in the end, worthless and ineffectual. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that word if implies that peace may not always be possible. And sometimes, despite our best efforts, as far as it depends on you, peace cannot be achieved or maintained with others. However, again, what Philemon demonstrates is that God is honored and pleased by the hope-filled, obedient effort to pursue reconciliation, even when outcomes are uncertain. Uh, here's the, so, so far, just to recap, uh, where we've been so far is that the first thing we see in how the gospel is reflected here in, in these efforts to reconcile is that it encourages us to go to the person. We see that certainly with Onesimus, he comes home. 
Uh, the second one is that we pursue it even though it, the outcomes are uncertain or even if the outcome looks impossible. The second thing I want us to see here has to do with the welcome. In Romans 15, 7, we read this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I mean, we could spend a month of Sundays just unpacking what it means to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. How did Christ welcome us? What does that mean for how we welcome one another? But we hear a very similar line in verse 17 of Philemon. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul writes this to uh, Paul is the author of both Philemon and Romans. He's the one who wrote, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He's also the one who writes, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And I think this is a very personal thing for Paul. Uh, I really do. Do you guys remember, you might know your Bibles well enough, do you remember the story of when Paul first became a believer? Uh, he had spent his life before his miraculous um, conversion on the Damascus Road, uh, being uh, a horrible persecutor of the church, breathing threats and murder. He'd gone house to house, hauling them off to prison. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. So that when he became a Christian, the early church in Jerusalem wanted nothing to do with him. But we read this in, uh, in the book of Acts. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. They didn't believe that he'd changed his tune. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Uh, Paul is now doing for Onesimus essentially what Barnabas did for him. And really, they're both doing what Jesus did for all of us. Jesus brings us to God the Father. He vouches for us, as it were. He, he clothes us in His robe, and he, uh, and he serves as an intercessor for us before the throne. Jesus welcomed us despite our sins and imperfections. Philemon, welcome Him back in that spirit. He's a sinner. He's imperfect. I'm not asking you to say He's changed. Love Him anyway. How did Jesus welcome us? That's how we're to welcome one another. Also, notice this. Jesus welcomed us into his very home. I reflect on this a lot when I think about what Jesus did for us. Uh, I might very easily forgive somebody, but then say, really don't want anything more to do with them. <laughs> Jesus didn't just forgive us and then say, all right, now let's go our separate ways. We're cool. You go that way. I'll go that way. We're good. No, he welcomed us right into his very home. In fact, he welcomes us into his very family. And Paul is talking here in this very same way. He says to Philemon, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he's speaking the language of family, he's speaking the language of permanence, bond, foreverness, and that's the church, guys. And so these kinds of, the kind of brokenness um, that we see in the world, again, should look different than in the church than in the surrounding culture. That's the goal. It's not always the reality, but that's what we're trying to see and, and accomplish. 
Uh, a fourth way that we see the gospel uh, reflected in the story of Philemon is in forgiveness. Uh, we read this, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then we read in Philemon, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. As the Lord has forgiven me, so you also must forgive, we read in Philippians. But then in Philemon, again, Paul talks about Philemon owing his whole self to the fact that he's been won over, that he's been saved. Uh, one of the things I see in here is that what the gospel does is it doesn't so much change the way we look at other people. It awakens us to the reality that we've been looking at everything through the broken prism of ourself. Uh, the problem with Philemon is not that he sees Onesimus incorrectly, um, but maybe that he sees himself as somehow better than Onesimus. Again, this is how the gospel works. It brings us into an environment where a lot of bad things just sort of wilt and die. That's what F.F. Bruce said. I quoted him last, last week. Um, but what happens here is when we come to understand that before the Lord, we had no merit. We're not good. We didn't do anything to accomplish what God has given to us. That really does change the way that we look on others in our lives. So we begin by recognizing that we're all slaves. Paul, interestingly, begins this letter by saying, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Normally, he begins his letters by referencing who he is as an apostle, but he begins this letter by saying, a prisoner. He wants to begin the conversation on a different note, encouraging Philemon not to look at himself as a lord or a master over Onesimus, but as a fellow person in great need before the throne of God just as Onesimus is. The poet John Donne said that um, death comes to us all equally and finds us all equal when it comes. And that's part, I think, of what Paul is saying to Onesimus, uh, Philemon in this letter, is you need to look upon Onesimus as a brother, somebody who's equally in need before the God is yourself. You're not his better in a spiritual sense. So Philemon is being encouraged, even though he's the master, to put himself in a position of loving service to the lowly Onesimus. And this is the very heart of the gospel that is centered on Jesus' act in coming to the earth as one of us to die on the cross. I want to conclude uh, our study here in, in Philemon this morning just by quoting uh, the author Christina Fox. She writes this, Philemon is a tiny book and often overlooked, but it is powerful with gospel truth. It reminds us that only in Christ do we find our true selves, our true identity. The truth is, before Christ, we were Onesimus. We were useless. We were rebellious thieves and runaway slaves, deserving punishment for our sins. We feared returning home to our master. We felt ashamed, worthless, and unloved. In stepped a substitute one willing to take for us all the punishment we deserved. The Son of God took on flesh and paid the penalty we were due at the cross. He wiped the slate clean, clothed us with His righteousness, 
and allowed us to return home to the Father without fear and with full acceptance, covered by the perfect works of Christ. Paul mirrored the gospel when he stepped in as a substitute for Onesimus. Receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account, says Paul. Because of Paul, Onesimus was welcomed back into Philemon's home, we suppose. Because of Jesus, we are welcomed into God's. Martin Luther put it this way, As Christ does for us with God, the Father, so does Paul with Philemon for Onesimus. We are all God's Onesimi. And so that ends on this same note where we began, that the book of Philemon is all about living out the gospel. And part of that, at the center of this story, if Philemon is all about the gospel, the gospel is all about reconciliation, and so it's no surprise that at the center of Philemon is the story of reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. But that really does leave us with a question. That really does leave me with a question. I have people in my life um, that things are not the way I would like them to be. I do. Josh Tate does. And I'm sure that you do too. And part of the question that has to leave us as we walk out of here is, what are we going to do with that? I'm a muddler, but Philemon has uh, prompted me to not be like that. I'm not sure of how things will go. I'm not sure of the, ultimately the result, but that's not the point. Uh, I find a desire to be like God welling up within me and needs to find expression and a desire to go to that person, even though the result's not sure, and to welcome them with open-handedness and generosity, to forgive, and ultimately to seek and pursue wholeness in those relationships. Whether it's a big estrangement or a small one, I think it's part of becoming like the God that we love, that we take up the ministry of reconciliation, living out these truths in our own relationships.